Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say, so there will always be others that see it differently. And I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. Prison does not solve any of the things that actually lead to people offending. We need to look a little bit deeper than just punishing the behaviour itself. And we need to look at what's caused people to end up in the justice system in the first place. Dr Mindy Satori has worked in criminal justice system settings as an advocate, community sector practitioner, an academic researcher and police and service delivery reform specialist for more than 20 years. She's director of the Justice Reform Initiative and is part of a driving force for criminal justice reform across Australia. The JRI, that's what we're going to call it today, uh, the Justice Reform Initiative, it's an alliance of like-minded people who share long-standing professional experience lived experience and or expert knowledge of the justice system who believe that jailing is failing and the overuse of prisons is fundamentally harmful to those in prison, their family, friends and the broader community. 
Evidence shows us that the majority of people entering prison usually arrive there because of an underpinning cycle of disadvantage and that prison both exacerbates and entrenches a broader cycle of disadvantage which needs to be broken. And that's one of JRI's missions or visions, if you like. Is being tougher on crime the answer? Because if we're tougher on crime, that means more offenders are jailed or remanded in custody, which means building more prisons. I understand that there'll be those in the community who want offenders punished and imprisoned and couldn't care less about what life is like in jail. But one wrong decision made in a split second and any of us could face incarceration. Decreasing disability, social and support services, unemployment and mental health issues mean many disadvantaged or marginalised groups can lose their way, get into the wrong crowd, like any of us, and find themselves incarcerated. Locking up people and throwing away the key isn't the answer to being tough on crime. It can't be the answer. We need to address the issue before jail. And if that isn't possible, give them some support programs post-release to help them reintegrate back into our community. Dr Satori and her team at JRI seek to find alternatives to those incarcerated for, I suppose, more of the minor of offences. The recidivism rate is around 50%, which confirms that jailing is failing. So what are our alternatives? Anyway, that's uh, um, my introduction to Dr Mindy Satori. We can call her Mindy. Um, And I just said to Mindy before, and I mean it from, you know, the bottom of my heart, Mindy, I love what you do and what you stand for. Thank you so much for that, Narelle, and thank you for that amazing introduction. I feel like you've done a lot of my work in terms of kind of actually articulating what some of the problems and some of the issues are, but I'm very happy to be here on your podcast. Uh, And so am I. (laughs) I feel very strongly about offenders like I am, you know, being a, an ex-police woman, yes, I, I put them in jail or I tried to, a lot of them, but sometimes, and the ones that I put in jail or responsible uh, tried to, they were serious offenders and that's not what we're talking about, is it? We're not talking about murder, murderers and rapists. We are talking about the more minor of offences. Is that right with jailing is failing? Yeah, look, well, what what uh, the Justice Reform Initiative is saying is that jailing is failing a whole range of different populations. And some of those are populations that we send to prison in, you know, really disproportionate numbers. So we know, obviously, there are so many people with mental health conditions in our prison, so many people with cognitive impairment, so many people that actually, you know, are homeless, so many people that have come from situations of extreme disadvantage. Now, we're not saying that any of those things is an excuse for committing crime because, of course, it's not. But what we are saying is that if you look at the reality of who it is that goes to prison and you look at what it costs to keep to keep populations inside prisons and often, yes, that you know, they haven't committed particularly serious offences, and then you look at what people's lives have been like 
as they've sort of moved towards the justice system. And there is so much that is missing in terms of what we could actually be doing in the community so that people actually receive the supports, the services, the connections, the opportunities that they require rather than doing what we're doing at the moment, which is managing people in justice system settings rather than providing support in the community. Now, I think the question of who it is that goes to prison is a really important one. And we are not, you know, we're not an abolitionist organization. We're saying absolutely there is a need for prison. But what we are saying is that if you look at who actually is in prison, we will see that a third of people across Australia are in prison on remand. That means they haven't actually been found guilty of anything yet. They haven't been sentenced. So we need to look at that population just for starters. We also need to look at people who are, you know, have been imprisoned primarily because they don't have opportunities in the community. And we also, as you've mentioned, we need to look at what's happening when people walk out the prison gates to actually ensure that we're not setting people up for failure. We're not setting people up to just be in that revolving door of incarceration, leaving prison into homelessness, having nothing sort of on the outside, having no access to drug and alcohol support, and then going back into prison. Because again, we know the vast majority of people in prison are actually there for fairly short periods. Now, I think, and sorry, I, I won't I won't talk forever on this question, but it's, it's such a big one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I guess that I hesitate about making distinctions between particular sorts of crime. I, I agree with you that there are some sorts of crime that require incarceration. But I think also what we do need to continue to think about is looking at what the drivers of incarceration are, regardless of what the crime is, because the more that we address those, the more we're going to actually reduce crime. There is nothing about the Justice Reform Initiative that says we should be soft on crime, quite the opposite. We just need to be very smart about the ways that we're tough on crime. Now, if we know, for instance, in New South Wales, which is my home state, a third of women are actually in prison for acts intended to cause injury. So if you were to sort of say, well, look, you know, people shouldn't be going to prison for violent crimes, then, you know, you'd you'd be discounting this third of women that are in there for that particular offence category. But what I am saying is that we actually do need to look behind what that offending, you know, where that offending has come from. What we'll also see is about 90% of women in custody have themselves been the victims of crime quite often in the form of gendered violence. So in those instances, when we're looking at those acts intended to cause injury, we do need to think about, well, was, you know, what was the context in which this offending was occurring? Was it occurring, for instance, in the context of an abusive relationship? Was it occurring in a set of desperate circumstances as a consequence of homelessness, poverty, experience of violence and experience of trauma? I guess that what we're saying is that prison, unfortunately, does not solve any of the things that actually lead to people offending. And so we need to be very clear when we're, we're coming up with alternatives that we need to look a little bit deeper than just punishing the behaviour itself and we need to look at what's caused people to end up in the justice system in the first place. There's a couple of things there that I'd like to um, point uh, ask you. You just said then that... Uh, there's a number, a lot of women that are in incarcerated because they themselves have been in a domestic violence, violence situation, correct? 
the it's not necessarily a causal factor, but if you were to take a snapshot of the women's population across Australia, you would see in the research sort of ranges from about 60% to 98%, depending on where you look, of women have themselves been in either uh, have experienced either childhood abuse or have have experienced um, violence, gendered violence in their relationships. Okay, because my point with that is men that are in jail, uh, that are incarcerated, they would also have um, a reason why they're there. For instance, I would think a lot of uh, there's, as you um, intimated before, there's a lot of mental illness is a reason why a lot of people go to jail. Absolutely. Yeah, so why I just think we've got to be careful, don't we, about differentiating between women in jail and men in jail because women may have a, a reason, let's say, to simplify yeah. it, but men men have a reason as well and I'm, I just don't know what the difference is and I, oh no! That I'm not trying to be no, controversial. Absolutely, I agree. And I yeah. think that you know, and it's absolutely. I, I think you know, we, we've we've got a lot of research about women in prison. There's been a lot of evidence, sort of, and, and a lot of kind of surveys and so on that have kind of unpacked that. And I guess that we do know that there are some differences in terms of the rates at which people have experienced, you know, what I'd call gendered violence, that is violence that is in the context of, of sort of their relationships and, and their familial relationships as well. But having said that, we also know that huge numbers of men in prison have experienced trauma of some sort. You only have to look at the uh, Royal Commission into Institutional Responses and look at the hundreds and hundreds of men that were interviewed by the Royal Commission who were currently in prison at the time that the Royal Commission was taking place who had themselves experienced, um, you know, significant trauma and abuse in institutional settings. So, yes, it is not a a men versus women thing. There is no doubt that all people in prison, you know, not all people in prison, but large numbers of people in prison have experienced significant trauma. And that's, you know, I I guess that's one of the things that's not very controversial when you look at the evidence. There's nobody that says that isn't the case. That's very clear. And I, I guess that we know the demographics of who it is that go to prison, again, it's not something that anyone really spends any time arguing about. We know that prisons have always housed people who come from situations of disadvantage, who have experienced trauma, who come into contact with police much more regularly than people that come from affluent sort of backgrounds. But again, this is not to excuse offending. It's to provide a context in which we can actually start looking at the evidence and actually start looking at, well, if we're serious about reducing crime and if we're serious about reducing reoffending, then we absolutely need to take into account the demographic reality that nobody argues with about who it is that goes to prison. And absolutely that includes these histories of, of often intergenerational trauma and certainly, you know, large numbers of people that have experienced abuse and neglect and, and really tough childhoods. And again, not to minimise offending, but just to give us a reality check in terms of what it is that's driving uh, incarceration. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So when and why was the Justice Reform Initiative formed? Well, it's a, I think that one of the things, so it was formed by um, Robert Tickner, who's a former 
Aboriginal Affairs Minister in the Keating government back in the 90s. Um, but he started having conversations. He was the minister that was responsible for the implementation of the recommendations of the, um, Abor- the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody. So this was something that has been close to his heart for a very, very long period of time. And I think Robert, like many others who have been in this space for decades and certainly like many Aboriginal leaders and Aboriginal-led organisations who have absolutely been leading the charge in terms of trying to think about ways to do this differently. Robert, I think, has been, you know, became incredibly disheartened about the rates of over-incarceration of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, the fact that so many of those recommendations, most of the recommendations of the Royal Commission more than 30 years ago have not been adopted and that the situation, in fact, is getting worse. So we are over-incarcerating in Australia at a rate we are the third highest in the world in terms of our over-incarceration rate or in terms of the the speed at which we're incarcerating. So the only two countries that incarcerated faster than us between 2003 and 2018 were Colombia and Turkey. Like Australia is, even the United States is starting to turn things around. There's still a huge problem of mass incarceration there, but even there there's been a 14% reduction. in in the period that we have just been increasing. So Robert looked at this situation, looked at at the fact that, in fact, recidivism rates are going up. Numbers of, you know, were it not for COVID, we would have been at the highest rate, you know, that we've ever been at a couple of years ago. We've seen some reductions as a consequence of COVID. But things are are really getting worse. And what he was really interested in is, is, well, you know, why and how and how can we also provide support to, you know, I guess the Aboriginal organisations who have been really trying to do, you know, so much of the work in this space. He looked to the United States and, and noticed something really interesting, which is that, you know, even though there is still a huge way to go, rhetorically there's been a really significant shift politically. So in the last presidential debates, there's a, a sort of a debate between Biden and Trump where they're actually arguing about who is going to be better at keeping people out of prison, where they're blaming each other for, um, you know, the mass incarceration across the United States. And I just, he started thinking, and I totally agree, can you imagine Australian politicians actually fighting about who can send less people to prison? You had you had this situation where... No, I can't. I know, but that's, that's what we need to do, and that's really the impetus yes. for the Justice Reform Initiative. You've also got in America, you know, groups, there's a, an amazing group called the Law Enforcement Leaders, and they are an advocacy group made up primarily of former... Uh, police chiefs and former corrections chiefs who are all saying we need to reduce incarceration and you know in order to reduce crime we need to reduce incarceration because they know and can see of course and all the evidence tells us that imprisonment makes crime worse the experience of imprisonment makes people much more likely to to offend so robert started having conversations with many different people um former members of parliament from all sides of politics former members of the judiciary, people with lived experience of incarceration, uh, former police officers, police chiefs in Australia, and just found an enormous amount of goodwill and support for this idea that we needed to do something differently. So he started pulling together people as patrons, and we've been incredibly fortunate. So William Dean and Dame Quentin Bryce, have, have, you know, both former Governor Generals of Australia, have come on board as our patrons and chief. And 
you can see on our website that it's determinedly cross-party. So we have people from all sides of politics. We have a number of former corrections commissioners. We have Mick Palmer, former federal police commissioner. We have representatives as staunch Aboriginal community leaders who have been really, again, like leading the charge when it comes to calling for, for a change in, in justice policy. So he pulled together sort of all of these amazing people of goodwill from all different walks of life, and they've all come together to say, look, we, we really need to turn this around. And then we've been very fortunate to receive some funding from the Paul Ramsey Foundation to enable us to start employing staff around, around the country to really run campaigns and advocacy in order to, to get to that point. I mean, we need to do more than this, but we need to get to a point politically where it's no longer a vote winner to be saying we're going to be tough on crime and lock more and more people up. We need it to be the opposite of yeah. that. Yeah. That's fascinating to think that we could have, uh, you know, the uh, politicians actually trying to keep people out of jail rather than what they're doing at the moment, which is I suppose they're trying to be tough on crime and being tough on crime to most people means putting more people in jail and that's and it's just not working. So why does our criminal justice system seem seem to be failing? Is there anywhere in the world where it isn't failing. And you've just uh, told us about the US, that what, 14% you said? Yeah, that's their right. reduction. So, and you think that you attribute that to the politicians yeah, look, I, I probably agree. Yes, look, I wouldn't actually use the US as a shining example of what to do because actually it is a disaster of mass incarceration over there in a way that is completely unprecedented. But I guess what, what is interesting there is that there is a shift in terms of incarceration yeah. and, there, and there has been uh, a shift rhetorically which has led that along. Um, but where I would be looking are places like New Zealand, which has also seen a significant reduction in, in incarceration over the last few years as a consequence of a whole-of-government approach to reducing incarceration and a commitment by the New Zealand government to do that. We've also, I think, we, we cannot sort of look at how to do things better without looking at the Scandinavian countries. And again, you know, there are places in Scandinavia where prisons are being shut down because crime is reducing and there just isn't the need for them. So that's actually really where we need to be looking. Oh, my goodness. Uh, also, I think that what we what we can't forget is that there are also success stories within our own jurisdictions within Australia that we need to look to. And there are programs, services, approaches that are absolutely successful in terms of reducing incarceration and reducing cycles of incarceration. But the problem is that they're not at scale. They're not within the system. They're little sort of they're little things that exist here and there that show us what we need to be doing on a much larger scale. And by that, I mean we know that there are moments at every point in the criminal justice system that can make a huge difference in terms of whether or not somebody is sucked into sort of police, courts, imprisonment or whether or not they're springboarded into a different kind of support system. So, for instance, we know that at the point of policing, there are some really interesting programs, especially in New Zealand, around pre-charge diversion. What happens if, if you know, police, rather than charging somebody, were able to refer somebody to a mental health service that were able to kind of meet the needs of that young person then, for instance? We also know there are points at, that you, we also know at the point of court, there are 
multiple opportunities in the form of specialist courts, in the form of different kinds of sentencing approaches, drug courts, Murray courts, Khoury courts, drug and, uh, you know, mental health courts, disability courts. We know that these things work in terms of providing an alternative pathway. We also know that most people don't get access to them because of a whole range of reasons, including just the, the capacity of those courts to, to meet what, what the need is in terms of people cycling through. We also know that inside prisons, access to education that is meaningful, access to employment opportunities that are meaningful, access to training, access to services and programs that actually, again, look at those drivers of incarceration and are able to really, you know, build people up while they're in custody, access to really solid mental health support, access to, you know, a disability diagnosis and then support. Those things should all be happening in a prison and we know they make a difference. And then really there's a very significant piece of research around what happens for people when they walk out the prison gates. Now, we know that, as you said, 50% of people go back to prison within two years. That number goes up the higher, the, the, the more times you've been to prison. So, if I went to prison tomorrow and I've never been to prison before, I would have a 50% chance of going back to prison within a couple of years. But if I'd already been to prison four or five times, then my rate or my risk of return goes up to around 80%. If I'm a young Indigenous man, then that goes up even further, you know. So we we need to do something to break that cycle for people that are stuck in that system. And I do mean stuck because the opportunities for people especially if they're doing short sentences and cycling in and out are really minimal. So even though we know 50% of people come back within two years, the number goes up if you've done time in prison. But if you were to take a photograph today of everybody in prison, you'd see that more than 70% of people sitting behind bars have actually been there before. So we know it's failing in terms of the people that are there. And we're actually saying we cannot forget about that population because we know from the evidence and from the research that if there is support, pre- and post-release support, long-term support that includes housing, that includes looking at mental health, that includes looking at disability, holistic wraparound intensive casework support. It's not. It's really not a complex kind of idea. It's just somebody that is there to support that person with all of the different things that people need when they come out of prison. We've seen some research out of New South Wales that's seen a 65% reduction in recidivism for people that, you know, have very high risks of rate of return. And there's lots of services that are providing this kind of support, but they're working with tiny numbers comparative to the numbers coming out of prison. So we know there are these opportunities to actually invest and resource programs and services and supports that make a difference. What we know is that there isn't yet the political will to do so. And we need to bring the public along and the public need to understand the importance of this and these kinds of approaches in terms of community safety. I like the idea of having programs while prisoners are incarcerated because it gives them, you know, some hope. It gives them something to do. It gives them, um, you know, a purpose, I suppose. But with all of that, having programs in prison, it's all about money, isn't it? And that wouldn't be cheap to have a, a program in prison. Yeah. But that's what we need, isn't uh, Absolutely. It? But, I mean, if you look at what the cost of imprisonment is across Australia, so at the moment it's 
$5 billion, more than $5 billion a year across Australia, just just the operations, you know, just just the sort of churning kind of people in and out, right? And How, how much for, for one prisoner? I think I read somewhere, is it around 110000 Yeah, that's right. And But that goes up yeah. for a kid. It's around half a million dollars a year or even more in some jurisdictions, up to $750,000 up in the Northern Territory, more in some places. What, why the difference there, Mindy, with a, a child? Uh, Is that what you said? Yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, Look, yeah. it's to do with the intensity of what's required in terms of in terms of young people in custody. But I, I guess the point is that yes, you know, programs cost money, but they don't cost more than what it is that we're doing at the moment. And and the reality is we've got an overcrowded prison system in most places in Australia. There's very few places that don't have a, a situation where there's overcrowding. Overcrowding makes it much more difficult to uh, run a prison. It certainly makes it much more difficult to run programs in a prison. Um, it also makes them much more uns- unsafe environments. We also have um, a situation where there is, uh, I guess, the need for services on the outside, so community Community-led services know how to provide really solid, good sort of support. They need to be inside the prison so that people that are in prison can then connect with other services on the outside. There's a real disconnect between the stuff that happens in prison and then what happens on the outside. So we actually need to build proper sort of pathways from the community into prison and then out of prison so that there's a bit of a continuity of care. But, yeah, there's no doubt that things like, I mean, most people in prison, I think people are really shocked by this because so many people are there on remand or they're on short sentences, a lot of people have access to absolutely nothing. A lot of people are locked in their cells, not because they've done anything wrong, just because there's an issue in terms of staffing overcrowded prisons. A lot of people are locked in their cells 23 out of 24 hours a day, and that includes children. So what we're actually doing to people while they're in prison and this is really important when you think about risk of reoffending and actually seriously trying to reduce crime. And I guess I'm always thinking, imagine if, if I was to be treated or my children were to be treated like that, to be locked in a cell with no access to, you know, to outside or light or, you know, any of the things that I guess so many of us require in order to move through the world in a way that feels okay. And then imagine if you're also in an environment which is incredibly stressful, where it's incredibly boring and incredibly stressful. So that's that sort of dreadful mix for both the people that are working in prisons and, and for the people that, that are, are locked up in them. Um and there's nothing, there's nothing to keep you occupied, to keep your mind off, you know, off sort of yourself and, and your problems. There's no sort of, there's not a lot of hope. There's no distraction. There's very limited distraction. There's stress and there's, you know, often bad food and, you know, it's, so again, it's not, this is not often people, when you talk about conditions in prison, people are like, oh, well, you know, people deserve it. And people, you know, they can hold that opinion if they want to. But again, what we're sort of saying is, why don't we try and just be really pragmatic about it? Even if you take any of the moral stuff out of it, even if you really think that nobody deserves to sort of live in a in a reasonable way after they've committed a crime, even if that's your approach, what do you think that does to people as a human? Because I think what, what people often forget also is that almost everybody that goes to prison comes out. We've got very few people in Australia that are there for their actual life, as of course you'd know, having you know, spent all of your life in this space as well. Almost everybody comes out. 
So, and, and most people come out within a couple of years. You know, we don't have that many people doing more than two years. So what actually happens to people while they're in prison is incredibly important and how people are treated. And again, we do not have to do things the way that we're doing things in Australia and there are examples all over the world, including in the Scandinavian countries where I've spoken about, where there is not an adversarial relationship between the people that are running the prisons and the people that are locked up in the prisons, where there are, you know, access to uh, outdoors and light and sport and programs and education, where there is access to employment. And again, I should say this, this exists in pockets around Australia too, and there are amazing people all over the place trying to improve the way that things operate in, in corrections. But mm. for the majority of people and the majority of people cycling in and out, often their time in prison is really, it's wasted. There's, there's not a lot yeah. going on. It's funny you say that. I had um, a guest on my podcast oh, six weeks or so ago now, a young man who was incarcerated for serious, really serious driving offences. And he was put in solitary confinement for uh, four days, I think he said. And he said that that was the most torturous four days of his life. And when you're talking there about children being in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day, I it's just cruel. Yeah, it, you know, it is. And I honestly think that we will look back at this time, at this time of mass incarceration, at these decades, and especially the last three decades where we have just increased the numbers of people that we're and, and children that we're putting in prison. I think we will look back at this and be absolutely horrified that this is how we responded, especially to children that, you know, actually require so much more than incarceration and, and, and deserve so much more in terms of opportunity. So I think it is horrendous. And again, it's, again, even if you don't see that as, as problematic and you think, oh, well, they've done something really bad and they deserve to be punished. I think one of the things that, again, and I, I worked in prisons for decades before I took on this job, primarily working with people before they came out of prison. And I, I think that what a lot of people don't quite understand is the severity of what loss of liberty actually means and what that feels mm, like and what that does. Because, you know, we get these glimpses of it during COVID and, you know, there's all these you know people going, it's like being in prison and it's actually I mean it's nothing like being in prison I've never been to prison but I know from so many conversations with people who have that loss of liberty is not just about you know not being able to leave the house it's about losing your hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com identity and and who you are kind of on the outside and if you think about how kind of confined we all felt when we first had to lock down and then multiply that and take away your ability to make a cup of tea or your ability to make yourself a snack that's going to kind of get you through the day or your ability to strum a guitar or your ability to look out a window or your ability to feel sort of you know fresh air on your face like all of the things that we just absolutely take for granted are stripped away and on top of that in many Australian prisons you know we we take away people's humanity often prisoners are called by numbers rather than their names we give people uniforms we you know take away agency in terms of how they spend every minute of their day now that is an incredibly serious form of punishment and I, I think that one of the things that we need to make a distinction between is that loss of liberty is supposed to be the only punishment that people receive when they go to prison. So in in our sort of legislative framework and certainly all the recommendations from things like the Nagel Royal Commission have said people should go to prison as punishment, not for punishment. So that distinction as punishment rather than for punishment is really important. The loss of liberty itself is the punishment, but instead what we tend to do is layer all of these other kinds of punishments on top of the loss of liberty. And that leads to a situation where, of course, people become institutionalised, of course people respond to being dehumanized in the way that we all respond to being dehumanized and that is we don't feel like we belong we often get really angry we often don't feel like society cares at all about us now if you put all of those things together with somebody who's already had a really difficult life you know that we're compounding the trauma we're compounding the disadvantage and we know we're setting people up to actually just go out and commit more crime it's it's such a clear sort of pathway 
of what happens when you treat people like that. And yet, you know, we continue to do it in this idea that somehow that's being tough on crime. And I guess that, again, we need to really rethink our sort of the, the myth about this, that, that being harsh or, or being tough on people when they're in prison is somehow going to reduce the likelihood of their reoffending when we know and all the evidence shows us it does the very opposite. Hmm. You, you keep talking about the increase over the last, I think you said, three decades. Mm. What is, why have we got, why is there such a huge increase over the decades? What's changed? Why are we putting so many people in jail? The only thing that has changed that you can sort of actually draw a line between this and, and that increase is policy and um, legislation. So yeah. there's yeah. over the last... Being tough on crime. Yeah, sort of exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Changes to yeah. bail legislation, tougher parole, um, you know, yeah. uh, and longer sentences, mandatory, mandatory sentences. sentences. Yeah. Those are all the things that drive up the rates. Yeah. The thing that does okay. has no association with the increase or, in fact, any decrease when that happens, there's, it's got no relationship to crime. So often we think that, well, if there's been an increase in incarceration, that means that there's been an increase in crime. We know that's not the case. All of the crime data shows us that, in fact, crime in most of the major categories has been absolutely stable for the last couple of decades. There's been, you know, there are some blips occasionally and sometimes there'll be changes in policing practice. So, you know, you might see an increase in, in uh, you know, domestic violence sort of offences, for instance. But overall, if you're looking at things like homicide and sexual assault and all of the things that we know, you know, are, are very serious, there's, there's no... There's no increase across Australia in none of the jurisdictions. And again, occasionally there'll be like a little a proliferation of burglaries somewhere, but that nothing yeah, significant. Yeah. So we've seen this massive increase, like I said, you know, over the last sort of since between 2003 and 2018, and this is from the Productivity Commission, it's not some left-wing think tank, you know, it's the Productivity <laughs> Commission is saying Australia is incarcerating at a rate that is the third highest in the world, second only to Turkey and Colombia. There has been absolutely no increase in crime over that period of time. The only thing that has shifted is the way in which we incarcerate, the, or the numbers that we incarcerate and the you know difficulty getting bail, uh, utilising imprisonment as a first resort rather than a last resort. So that, that's what shifted. There's not been any, any correlation between um, crime. So what are... Uh what are your views or alternatives for jailing them? Uh, so, like I said, there's there's we're, we're sort of saying, look, there's not one magic fix. It's not like there's one program that's going to solve all of the problems because obviously there are systemic issues to, to solve. But we do know, and there's enormous hope in all of, uh, mostly community-led, including Aboriginal community-led organisations and programs that are currently working with small numbers of people that could benefit enormously from being scaled up. Uh, so, for instance, in New South Wales, there's 20,000 people coming out of prison each year. Um, so, you know, it's a huge churn of a population. There's only 38 funded beds for people coming out of prison when we know that 50% of people coming out of prison don't have anywhere to live. I know from my own experience working in post-release and we, I used to provide support to people coming out of prison, very intensive sort of casework support, the kind of support that we know creates a drop in recidivism by 65%. 
people were always saying to me, where were you the first time I got out of prison? Like, where, where were you? Like, how come I only came across your organisation now? And when, and I've been going around Australia talking to service providers and people that run programs that have amazing outcomes like the, like the organisation I used to work with, there's, you know, there's hundreds of them, but some of them are working with 20 people a year. My old organisation worked with 400 people a year. There's 20,000 people coming out of prison each year. What we're saying is imagine if we had a system where rather than it being a matter of luck, if you happen to be in a prison that happened to have a good caseworker that happened to refer you to, you know, a particular post-release program, or you happen to be lucky enough to kind of to, to go through a specialist court that actually referred you into drug and alcohol treatment. Imagine if for everybody who actually kind of brushed up against the criminal justice system recognising that often that is when people are absolutely having the hardest moment of their life. Imagine if everybody had the opportunity to access the supports and services that they needed. Imagine if it wasn't just a matter of luck, if you happened to be able to get into a mental health service at the time that you needed it. Imagine if police didn't have to spend half their time waiting for people to get admitted into sort of, you know, to, to forensic hospitals so that they could actually go out and do proper policing. Imagine if the service system, the disability system, the health systems were actually supported to provide the kinds of things that we know. And again, the evidence is all there. These things stop people going back to prison. These things stop people going to prison in the first place. So what we're saying is that we we know that it is a matter of investment and it is a matter of political will. It's not a matter of being soft on crime. And I think there's ways that politicians can get on board with this and, and still kind of beat the tough on crime drum. We, you know, there's not many politicians that would say we don't need diversionary programs for kids at risk rather than sending them to prison. We need programs that are going to actually address all, the, all of the things that they've got going on. So I've got a sort of, we're, we're developing a whole Right, like we're collating all of the evidence and developing position papers on all of those different touch points where we know that if there are interventions that are systematised, we will get dramatic reductions in recidivism. And we're doing costings for that. And you know what? It's so much cheaper to provide support in the community than what it is to send people to prison. So there is a resource requirement. But again, if, if you take a sort of longer lens at what it, what it costs to people, to what it costs to lock people up, just to lock them up, then what it costs for you know people to continue committing crime, what it costs to the community, and then what it costs in terms of things like you know hospital admissions, um, you know crisis kind of responses, policing, courts. We know that providing the kind of support that is already happening on a small scale in the community would actually completely transform the way that we actually the way our criminal justice system operates. Oh, gee, it, yeah, it's. What do you, you know? What do you do? Sometimes I, I feel like you're probably almost banging your head against a brick wall. But look, I think you know, of course, and you know, sometimes I, yeah, sometimes I kind of look at what we're trying to do, and we've got an ambitious target. We're saying we want to reduce incarceration by fifty percent, you know, before twenty thirty. We're not looking around. We want to actually make a difference. But how we're looking to do that is, is, is there's four sort of strategies that we've got. So we've got these answers, right? We've we've got the we've got the answers, and and the community sector and Aboriginal led organisations have had the answers for a very long time they're they're all over the place in terms of how sort of what works um 
to reduce incarceration in terms of where you go to find all of that stuff. So we're pulling all of that together, putting together beautiful position papers on policing, on uh, courts, on post-release, on prison, on what needs to happen for women, for people with disabilities. We're putting together all of that kind of evidence. But actually the key part, the, the big piece of work and where I'm really focused and where my team is going to be really focused as we sort of roll this out across Australia is actually on changing the public conversation and changing the political conversation because once we've done those things that's actually when there's going to be an appetite to implement the things that we know are evidence-based and that's when I guess politicians will feel that they've got a little bit of cover if the, if the community is coming along on this journey so we need to really I guess you know have lots of conversations like this and I'm doing a lot of a lot of talking to lots of different people about why we need to do this but also you know, we need to change conversations in, in the papers. We need to change conversations on talkback radio so that rather than it being just an obvious kind of, you know, thing that prisons the, the answer, if, you know, to, to reducing crime, we need to start really challenging that. And I think, you know, I, I guess my optimism, which has kept me working in this space for such a long time, um, you know, my optimism yeah. is that people actually do get it. Like, you know, there's very few people that you sit down with and when you sort of actually, you know, you hear where people are coming from and especially, you know, people that have experienced crime themselves or people that live in communities that are beset by this or people that have grown up, you know, thinking that prison is absolutely the answer. You know, often people are surprisingly open open-minded and surprisingly willing to kind of think about how we might do things differently when you know when they understand that that there's a real there's a real crime you know there's a real crime prevention or, or community safety angle that we're coming from here and I think the same is true politically one of the key things we need to do is to really work with parliamentarians on all sides of politics to ensure that this stops being such a political football stops being something that's yeah, politicized yeah. and really encourages people to actually you know build evidence-based public policy yeah um what's the rate of employment for offenders who've been incarcerated for a time and then released like and also uh, what sort of barriers do they face? I don't know what the rate is. I'm sorry, I've got it somewhere, but I'd have to look it up. Um, I think in terms, but is it is it is it pretty low? Or there are very it- few people that walk out of prison into employment. So it's you know we we know that unemployment yeah. is one of the largest factors that people face, and then we also know that the barriers to employment are exacerbated by the experience of imprisonment itself, and also the the presence of a criminal record. Um, I think that there's been a huge amount of work done on this in the United States. Again, interestingly, it was Trump who sort of encouraged the employers of America to to give people with criminal records a, a second chance. You know, who's sort of made, made a big deal about. That. I didn't think I'd ever agree. With, I didn't think I'd ever agree with Mr. I Trump know, on anything. I know. It's, it's very surprising to me as well. But again, imagine if we had Australian parliamentarians who were, or you know, leaders of the country who were standing up and going, we need to give people a second chance. At, at the moment, there's so many barriers to employment as a consequence of criminal record checks. But also there's, you know, often people 
um, have, you know, have a lot of things to deal with before their employment ready. So, you know, it's very difficult to look for a job if, if you don't have somewhere to live. It's very difficult to look for a job if your family situation is in crisis, if you're trying to get custody of your kids. You know, there's so many things that people often have on their plate. So employment is absolutely critical and getting people to a point where they're able to sort of step into a job is absolutely critical. And I think there's huge amounts that could and should be happening both inside prison and on release to actually support that process and again where where it happens and it happens well we can see remarkable reductions in recidivism and again there's lots of programs that do this but again with very small numbers it's we need we need these sorts of responses to just be part of the fabric of the system rather than just you know something that somebody happens onto because they got lucky I, I think it would be human nature that you would be a little bit hesitant about employing um, somebody that has been in, incarcerated and I suppose that's that's something that we as a community have to get our head around and have to um, open our minds a bit more. I mean I would have to say you know I know a lot of people or I don't know a lot of people that have been in jail but um, it, it would be a big thing to employ somebody out of jail, you yeah. know, particularly, I don't know, for dishonesty offences, sure. for instance. Yeah. Like somebody with dishonesty offences that has been incarcerated, I would think because of that trust that has been um, a stripped of, like, I don't know if I could ever in, in, uh, employ somebody because you need to trust somebody, don't you? Yeah, sure. And look, I, I mean, I totally get what you're saying and, and I think that's a really, you know, of course, like there's this, there's no doubt that that's a really legitimate kind of anxiety that employers would have and that would that people would have. I guess that what, you know, and part of the job of what I'm trying to do and what the Justice Reform Initiative is trying to do is to also kind of humanise people that have been in prison and often, and I'm sure yes. you would have seen this in, in your policing as well, but I, you know, I sort of, I guess, had the privilege of getting to know people very well who had, you know, been incarcerated for all sorts of offences that, you know, I, I guess, you know, would be terrifying without any context or would be terrifying if you didn't actually get to know the person. And I guess that what, you know, my own experience has been but also what I've seen across the board and, and what, what's sort of borne out in a lot of research is that people, all of us, are much, much more than the worst thing that we ever did, you know. And once you get to know somebody um, and often you do understand a little bit more about where, th- where they were at when they were committing yep. the crime yep. and often, again, there is so much more to somebody than the crime it is that, that they've been locked up for. And I guess that the, the reason I say that is because we often, you know, rush into a pretty judgmental sort of space and, and it's very natural and human to do all of that. But, again, I've seen so, like I've seen this with employers, I've seen it with people that certainly aren't sympathetic to kind of, you know, people that have broken the law. I've seen it with politicians when you introduce them to people that have actually been to custody. When they have that moment that we all have when you're just having a cup of tea with somebody and they're sitting across the table from you and they're thinking, oh, and you're talking, I don't know, about your children or about the weather or whatever it is, and suddenly the the sort of the fear that you have around what somebody has done in the past melts away because there's just another human in front of you. And I guess that what often, you know, people in prison are quite literally an invisible population a lot of the time. And 
often, you know, people are very shocked when they meet somebody who's been to prison because they don't necessarily look like somebody that's been to prison according to sort of whatever that myth is. Or they might look like somebody who's been to prison according to that myth, but they might behave in a way that seems absolutely nothing like what you might be imagining or anticipating. So I think that part of part of um, the work ahead is to actually, you know, introduce people to to who it is that goes to prison and you know certainly I, I you know I'm very keen for as many people as possible to have that experience of going oh you know people it's actually just other humans who have made a mistake or you know have been in prison and never been found guilty but you know have been sort of caught by the police in a particular moment you know there's there's so many stories behind every single person who goes to prison we can't sort of I guess dismiss you know that that whole there's 43,000 people in prison in Australia at the moment and every single one of those people, you know, has a mum and a dad and, and, and has a family and has, you know, and there's kids and there's ambitions and there's hopes. And I, I guess that, again, this is not to minimise um, crime or minimise the impact of what they've done, but if we want people to actually be able to step outside of their identity as a prisoner or step outside of their identity as a crim or an inmate, then we need to also shine lights on people in different ways, you know, where, where it's not just about what they've done, but about, you know, who they are and who, who they want to be yeah. as well. A, a bit of a um, an insight into their humanness. And, and you know, I've, I can think of two people that I've interviewed that have been in jail and they are just the loveliest people. You know, they've made a mistake um, and the ones that I have spoken to are not backward in coming forward. They say, you know, they admit their mistake and how bad they feel. But I do think they've done their time and, you know, they deserve a, a second chance. So in one sense, I'm saying I'd be hesitant in, you know, say, uh, employing somebody that had been in jail for, say, dishonesty offences and one particular woman that I interviewed, oh, she was just, she was just so inspiring on so many levels. You know the reasons, and she actually explained the reasons why she had stolen. And as you say and explain, when you actually get in and find out, you know, a bit about their personal lives, it just seems so much more understandable and I think we've all made you know we've all made mistakes whether they're mistakes that are jailable offences or not uh, you know is another thing but I think you know uh, personally I think people deserve most people deserve a second chance. I wanted to just ask you about I want to talk a little bit about the minimum age of incarceration and uh, around the world I I think I'm right here that the minimum age most places around the world to be incarcerated is 14. In Australia, I'm pretty sure, and it includes Victoria, we can, I'm, we can lock up somebody at 10. Yeah. And, I, and I understand and hope that would be a very, very rare situation. But surely we need to reconsider this. How can a 10-year-old be incarcerated and surely jail is not the answer there. absolutely and yeah it's it's a huge issue that australia is trailing again the many places in the world there are some places in the world that have 12 there are some places in the world that have 14 but all the medical evidence 
and all the evidence from the United Nations and all the evidence from, you know, I guess global experts that have looked at this issue of criminal responsibility and when you can and can't be held accountable have all concluded that 14 is the absolute minimum age at which a child can be held criminally responsible for something. Now, that's not to say that people shouldn't be taken, you know, hold, you know, take responsibility for, for their actions. But the concept of criminal responsibility is something quite specific because it suggests that you have the capacity to understand the impact of your actions. And we know that 10-year-olds are children. You know, they haven't developed kind of emotionally, developmentally or intellectually, you know, in, in the ways that are required to be able to take criminal responsibility. So, yes, unfortunately, we do around Australia imprison 10, 11, 12 and 13-year-olds uh, in custody and that includes Victoria, that includes everywhere. There are some places that have many children of that age in, in custody. and it, Oh, that breaks my yeah, heart. Yeah, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Oh. Um, so, yeah, we definitely need to really, I, I mean, this is, it's one of those things where I think that politically, unfortunately, there's a little bit of fear around being seen to be soft on crime by agreeing to raise the age of criminal responsibility. There's been a fantastic campaign around all the reasons why we need to raise the age. Unfortunately, to date, we have, aside from the ACT, which is committed to raise the age to 14, they've done, you know, a whole lot of work around what that would look like. Um, we None of the other states and territories have, have come on board with this. So it's a huge issue because we know also the younger that a child is when they come into the justice system, the much more likely they are to remain entrenched in that system, to get stuck in that system. And so when we're incarcerating you know, children, we're also, you know, we're not just sentencing them to sort of whatever the period of custody is that they're sentenced to. We're, we're in many ways sentencing them to a life of, of cycling in and out of, of, of prisons. It's a totally unacceptable approach. And again, like with all of these things, there are absolutely examples of different ways of responding to children who more often than not, require an enormous amount in the community in which they're living rather than being locked up. Like that's actually what we need to respond to, not not the behaviour itself, even though the behaviour itself, you know, may be serious. We need to look at what's driving that. Yeah. I don't believe that a, a child is born bad. It's got to come from, well, please feel free to um, change my, try and change my, my point of view, but... I don't think they're born bad. I think it's about their background, um, the behaviour that they see as normal. They are moulded into that. Like they don't, they just don't offend at 10 for no, like not many kids that I knew offended. Oh, look, we might have pinched a lolly from the <laughs> milk bar yeah. or something, you know. I yeah, mean, yeah. really minor stuff. But these 10 year olds are being locked up for, you know, violent offence. I don't know. Well, you, well, you know what? I, I mean, I think there's a couple of things here. One is that there are 
lots of kids being locked up for not very serious offences, especially in some jurisdictions, including the Northern Territory and Western Australia. And so there is an issue of over-policing of particular communities and, you know. Is that because they don't actually know what to do with them? Yes. And and I think that that's, you know, that is one of the key issues that we do need to be really responding to. It's like, if not prison, then what? You know, or if a kid is really acting out, they're running a muck at night, there's a gang of kids that are running a muck somewhere and, you know, at, at the moment, you know what what is there to do they they can't go back home because home's not safe they can't um you know that there's nowhere for for people to go what what are the options so those are the things that we actually as a community need to be answering you know should there be places that are safe houses for kids that are at risk should there be mental health support workers doing some of that work or or youth workers doing some of that work rather than police are there ways of de-escalating that don't involve you know locking a kid in a, in a police cell for a night or or getting them into custody while they're waiting to be sentenced. So, you know, and the answer is yes, you know, there has to be. Where it exists in some places and where it doesn't, we need to actually make sure that it does exist. But it's not actually always about the severity of the offending. It's often around, again, the legislative frame around the fact that there are some places where there is very limited options for the judiciary in terms of what they do with a kid that comes before them multiple times, even if it is on very minor sort of uh, shoplifting type offences. So there are absolutely children that are going to prison because they are shoplifting. So it might, you know, that, that thing of like, you know, you might have nicked a lolly, but the chances are there weren't police kind of in your community, you know, observing you in, in the ways that a lot of these kids are observed. So I think there's a number of factors there. And again, of course, there is some sort of offending that is violent and it does destroy property and it does you know it absolutely causes harm but if somebody doesn't actually know how to take responsibility for though for their actions you know what's what's putting them in prison going to do are there other ways of actually teaching children about how to take responsibility you know we can look at things like restorative justice practices or transformative justice practices or circle sentencing where it's much more about actually facing the people that you've caused harm to and and finding ways of taking responsibility within all of that and that you know we know again from the evidence much more powerful in terms of reducing that behavior than locking kids up You talked before about the Royal Commission into the Aboriginal deaths in custody uh, around 30 years ago. And in researching today, I noted that many of the recommendations haven't been implemented. And this, this isn't just about the Aboriginal deaths in custody Royal Commission. We've had so many, from my point of view, we've had so many Royal Commissions, uh, the, and the impl- the uh, recommendations are impl- aren't implemented, and it just happens too often. So, how can we, as a community out there, how can we put pressure on whoever it is uh, to do this to to actually do what they say or what yeah. they recommend? Look, it's such a great question, and we do need to keep on putting putting that pressure on because we've had thirty years worth of commissions and inquiries and their reports reports after report you know all saying the same thing look I mean one of the first things is that people should absolutely sign up to the sort of jailing is failing kind of supporter website so we've got a, a website where you can sign up and we can kind of you know I guess uh, tell you what activities we're undertaking that we'd love to kind of engage with people about. Um, but I guess it, it is also, you know, I would really encourage people to have, uh, you know, in, in terms of 
maintaining a sort of public conversation about how this is not working for any of us. You know, we need we need to change the conversations, have those challenging conversations with your friends and families or your rotary clubs or your Lions clubs or your country women's associations. Like we need to be having this conversation in as many places as possible. It's not just something that people that have worked in policing or in post-release or in the justice space should be engaging with. And one of the things I guess that, you know, we know is that People just, as and you would have experienced this, I'm sure, time and time again, people don't know a lot about the criminal justice system unless they're working in it or unless unless they're involved in it. And often when people do learn about it, they're really shocked at how it operates or how it doesn't operate. So I think that in terms of putting pressure on parliamentarians and putting pressure on MPs, have conversations with local MPs about you know how what their response to to the justice system is and whether or not you know prisons actually working to do all the things it's supposed to be doing have a talk to people about whether or not there's mental health services or drug or alcohol services that might be there instead of incarceration for for people that require that and who would be much better off and the community would be much safer if in fact there was access to those things so i, I think part of it is around you know uh, really trying to change the way that we think and talk about crime and punishment and so that we're actually saying, well, what does the evidence actually tell us and what do we actually want as a community and how are we going to feel when we look back at the rate of incarceration in Australia and, you know, how we sort of conscionably allowed that to, to keep happening, especially when we know so many people in prison actually could have amazing, productive, good, healthy, happy lives in the community if we were to give them that opportunity. So I, I think that, you know, we need to sort of start asking questions of ourselves as a community. What do we know about the prison system? Do we know if it's working? What could be happening differently? And don't let politicians get away with the tough on crime rhetoric. It's It, it doesn't fly and it shouldn't be allowed to fly. So we need to challenge that at every step. It was fantastic to talk to you, Narelle. And- Likewise. And I, I do mean it from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for everything that you are doing with um, uh, the Justice Reform Initiative. It, um, it's such an important, it's an important role. It's an important um, organisation. Thank you so much. Bye, Mindy. Ta-da. Bye. It's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A-T-R-E-O-N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there, 
who continue to support me. Thank you so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.